Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Brian Cox is an actor with over 250 credits to his name. That includes award-winning performances with the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing the original Hannibal Lecter in the 1986 thriller Manhunter, and playing the headmaster of Rushmore Academy in the Wes Anderson classic Rushmore. So you received the package. I just wanted to inform you about what's going on. I never took you for an informer, Max. What's that supposed to mean? What's that supposed to mean? But the truth is, he'll probably end up best known for playing Logan Roy on Succession. Succession is a TV drama about the mega-rich, dysfunctional Roy family and the giant media empire they control. Cox's character is the family's patriarch, and perhaps the coldest, grumpiest man on television today. Someone spiked Pierce. Which one of you boys did it? Tom! Yes? Sit on the floor. It's fun. Seriously? Yeah, it's a game. Bore on the floor. I really, I feel... Get down! What now? Nothing. I'll tell you later. Go on. Say! It's not a big deal. Lisa Arthur is going to represent Kendall. Huh? Fine. Let's get Leo. We'll beast him. We'll go full... You're marrying a man fathoms beneath you because you don't want to risk being betrayed. You're a f- coward. When you put all those credits together, I don't think it's going too far out of line in saying that's a lot of different stuff, really different stuff. I think it's fair to say Brian Cox has had an interesting life. He wrote about it all in a memoir, Putting the Rabbit in the Hat, covers his childhood growing up in post-war Dundee, Scotland, his time studying and performing Shakespeare in the UK, and his big break into TV and movies in the 90s. I'm really excited for you to hear our conversation with him, but before we do that, let's hear a little more of Logan Roy being mean. This clip is from the season two finale of Succession. The Roy family are on board their yacht. Logan is in a stateroom with his son, Kendall, who's played by Jeremy Strong. It's always seemed like Kendall would be the one to take over the business. It feels like he's been set up to do that, but he never has. So, he finally puts the question to his dad. What gives? Did you ever think I could do it? Do what? The top job? Oh, I don't know, maybe. You can say. I, well, I just... You know, you're smart, you're good, but I, I just don't know. What? Come on. You're not a killer. You have to be a killer. But nowadays, maybe you don't. 
I don't know. Brian Cox, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. Thank you. Nice to be here. Do you think of your character, Logan Roy, on Succession as being motivated by money or something that's more than that? Well, ostensibly he's motivated by money because that's that's his business. That's what he likes. But I think there's also something going on as well, which is quite mysterious. And it's still trying to fathom it out, you know, where he's actually coming from. Because, you know, he's a guy who's had a life. He's had a created an incredible business. But there are kind of missing bits, his background, his history, what he gets out of it, his enjoyment, you know, does he enjoy it? Well, I think he likes the hunt. I think he likes the whole business of the hunt and the play. But I think there's also an element that um, that is difficult for him because he does love his children and he does try to make his children as part of the frame of the existence and the future of the company, but they're endlessly found wanting, endlessly, and it's just fine. It's just very <laughs> difficult for him, you know. And I feel actually, I feel a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, everybody says oh, he's a bad father, oh, and terrible father, and no wonder he's a terrible father. No wonder the kids are terrible because he's been a terrible father. Well, he was a tough father. He wasn't particularly emotional father. He wasn't particularly poor. But I don't think, I, I, you know, those kids never wanted for anything. You know, they, they were spoiled. And that's the prime sat, satirical element of the show is these, these people who are entitled and don't deserve to be, you know. And uh, the show kind of deals with that uh, at its most extreme. And poor Logan is actually caught in the middle of it all because they are his kids, but at the same time, they're a handful and... They're not rewarding. You know, he's not getting anything back from them. He's not feeling that his children are, you know. I mean, my favorite thing is in uh, in the scene, the very end of episode three, when he says, he swears, he says, make your own effing pile, you know. And uh, and that's what he understands. He's done it. It's hard work. And they don't do the work. They want to cut corners. And... And he's hoping, he, he he thought that Shiv might be the answer, but she talks too much. You know, she dissipates herself in her own verbiage, you know, and Kendall's clearly unfit because he's neurotic and he's a drug addict and he's indulgent and and he can't see the wood for the trees. And Kieran, uh, I mean, uh, Roman is hopeful, but he's got this potty mouth and he's to be not trusted. So I think it's a natural conclusion that he's looked to Tom Wamsgarms because Tom is a country kid, he's a hick, and he's been thrown into the deep of it and he's experienced something which was way beyond his ken. Yet he's shown care. He's the only person who's shown any real care towards Logan. So that is something that Logan checks and says, I remember this, because you know, this boy has done something. So there's, a, there's an interesting development to be had in that relationship. And he also has to deal with the reality before him 
that these people who are disappointing him according to his values, like these people who are not doing what he wishes they could do to preserve what he has created or to take care of what he has created, are in part bad at it because he is their dad and it is a failure of the parents to not raise their kids right. I don't really buy that. You know, I, you know, my friend Brian Dennehy, the late Brian Dennehy, was a dear friend of mine. He said, you know, after 22, all bets are off. Now, after 22, you're, in your, you're, you're, you're really taking care of your own thing. You, you can blame your parents, but if you go on blaming your parents, you, you're not living your life because you're saying that's it. And I, I think that's a, a misnomer as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, my parents, you know, my father died when I was eight and my mother was seriously mentally ill for most of my, right into my teenagehood, you know. I mean, she got marginally better, but she was, had electric shock treatment and that damaged her. So I don't blame my parents except circumstances. And I think that um, Logan, you know, when you have kids, it's hard. I, I don't consider myself a particularly great father because I don't understand because I was never raised to understand the notion of boundaries, you know, which is what they tell you. You always got to exercise boundaries with your children. I'm hopeless. I've never been able to do that because I don't even, I don't even understand what boundaries mean. It's a kind of, it's something which is already preset as opposed to something which is organic. And you find out as you live what the story is. And I think that's the trouble with the, the, the Roy family is everything is preordained. So there's nothing that's organically ripe, new, fresh, you know. And that's, that's the biggest problem that they have. And it's the, in a way, it's the tragedy of, of Logan's life. You know, he's lived and he's built and he's created this extraordinary empire. And it's dubious indeed. And he's ruthless and all of that. And he's a character that people project certain things onto, which is understandable. But he's canny. He doesn't give a lot away. So I, I, I don't know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of empathy for him, because I, I think it's a difficult situation. If he didn't love his children, it would be a lot easier, you know, because then he wouldn't love them, and that would be it. But he does love them, and that's his, that's his cross. Brian, your character Logan Roy on Succession is Scottish American which is roughly yeah. what you are, though you've, you've lived all over the world. And both you and the character are from the same place, Dundee, Scotland. Yeah. Is that why you, you are so much more Scottish talking than the character? Well, no, it's, it's, it's a short story. When I was first approached by Adam McKay and Jesse, I, I said, you know, this character could be Scottish. And uh, Jesse said, oh, no, no, he's got to be American. He's got to be American. I said, okay, fine, he's American. So then they decided I was born in Quebec, which meant that I was a sort of mid-Atlantic mutt. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine, that's okay. So I'll do that. So for nine episodes, I played Logan. Uh, you know, there was the Scottish thing was not even there. And then Peter Friedman had did an ADR session, you know, which was a, a post-syncing session. And he said, you know, they've changed your birthplace. I said, what do you mean they've changed my birthplace? I, he said, well, you're not born in Quebec anymore. I said, well, nobody's told me. 
He said, no, you're not. I mean, you're now born. I said, oh, I can't remember where you're born. No, let me, let me look it up. So he went up and he said, oh, yeah, here we are. You're born in somewhere called Dundee, Scotland? And I said, well, that's where I was born. And he then said, well, that's a coincidence. I said, yeah, it's a hell of a coincidence. I said, I don't know what's going on. And then I said to Jesse, what is it? What is this? I mean, why am I suddenly? He said, oh, we thought it'd be a little surprise. And I said, it's a hell of a surprise. For nine episodes, I've been playing this sort of mid-Atlantic mutt. And now you tell me that I'm a Scot. So I can indulge my Scottishness a little more now. You know, I, I can be more Scottish-American, which is what I eventually became. But it was so bizarre. So much more with Brian Cox still to come. As we said, he's done a lot of classical theater, and we'll talk about how all that training has informed his role on Succession. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Most game shows quiz contestants about topics they don't even care about. But for 100 episodes, the Go Fact Yourself podcast has asked celebrity guests trivia about topics they choose for themselves. And introduce them to some of their personal heroes along the way. Oh my gosh. Shut up. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh my stuff. <laughs> it's so, so exciting to meet you. Join me, J. Keith Van Stratton. And me, Helen Hong, along with special guests DJ Jazzy Jeff and Faith Saley, plus some amazing surprise experts on the 100th episode of Go Fact Yourself. And join us twice a month, every month, for new episodes of Go Fact Yourself here on Maximum Fun. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Brian Cox. He's a veteran of the Royal Shakespeare Company and has literally hundreds of film and television credits. You might have seen him in the past few years playing Logan Roy on the smash hit HBO show Succession. He has a memoir about his life and work called Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. Let's get back into our conversation. Your father, as you mentioned, died when you were very young. You were eight years old. What do you most remember about him it was just an extraordinary i mean that's one of the reasons it's very hard for me to be a father because my father was mythic he was generous he was kind i mean he's i wasn't i they put they put me in front of a television set when he was at his funeral so i never attended his funeral but apparently there was over three or four hundred people there you know who knew my dad and loved my dad and my dad did a lot for the community which is he had his little shop in you know and help people. I mean, I went to this thing. I went to a a book uh, tour. I did a book tour of Scotland and I ended up in Dundee. And there were people there 70 years after the event, guys in their 80s who remembered my dad and remembered how how kind and caring that my father had been. Now, my problem, the the problem of our family was that um, my mother felt that he was too caring for other people and not enough caring for his own people, for his own family. She kept saying charity begins at home. And of course, I think that would have been a torturous thing for my father if that was true. And I don't think it was true at all. But he did care about people. He would go and help an old couple. He'd be working all day from five o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And then he would go and help an old couple decorate their apartment. You know, that's the kind of man he was. And that was, he believed in that. He was a true socialist in that sense. And, but people took advantage of him. And it, it made for a lot of, un, particularly for my mom, a lot of deep unhappiness. Do you remember when you were 
aware of your mom's mental illness? Um, yeah, I, I suppose I was aware of it. I mean, it had been deteriorating. And then the time I came back and she said she was cleaning the oven, though there was <laughs> an amazingly strong smell of, smell of gas. So it kind of hit me then, and I was ridiculously young. I was only about nine, and I just thought, no, there's something not right. You know, my mom's not right. And she wasn't right. You know, she wasn't. And she, and the only way they could deal with her, her disaffection and her bad memories was to try and eradicate them through electric shock treatment. And it was very primitive and very destroying. It destroyed a lot of my mother's personality. She recovered, but, you know, she was severely weakened as a result and um, tragic, a tragic thing. Did you feel like you could rely on her when you were a kid? Uh, no, not really. I mean, she was, no, it was, it was hard for her. It was so difficult. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of mourn the stuff that we lost as uh, as a mother and son because it was never there. It, it, it was there initially. It was certainly there in my in my toddlerhood, right from the right up until the age of eight. Even though before that she had run away. I mean, she was under crazy pressure of her, you know, just because she was an intelligent woman. She was a smart woman. She was a poetic woman, but she had no means of expressing herself. And that was what made it really very painful for her. And eventually it's, and, with, and she felt terribly guilty about my father's death. She felt that she was responsible and she wasn't. Of course, he had pancreatic cancer, but that was exacerbated by circumstances of investing a lot of money, which he lost and, and the family ending up in poverty. Well, the family, it was me and my, me and my mom. That was it. My brother ran off to the army and my sister emigrated to Canada. So she was well out of it. So we were left holding the proverbial. <laughs> At what point did you feel like you had some perspective on this really intense family of origin? Like, at what point did you feel like, okay, I'm doing my own thing in the world? I, I, I see, I was born with a, I was born with a survival mechanism. So in a way, even though I would, I mean, I knew that part of my absence was to do with preserving myself. There was this thing of self-preservation, which was kind of, that's what motivated absence. You know, when I felt that I was going to be overwhelmed by something, I would just cut out because I think I, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I'm not going to, you know, it's like, you know, did you ever see a series called Soap? Do you remember? Oh, Soap? yeah, sure. With Richard Mulligan. Sure. And Richard Mulligan used to do this snap, snap, and I'm out of here. And he'd, he, would, he would literally disappear. Not there, but he would actually go, I'm, I can't, this is all too much. And I, you know, that's, I think, what happened to me. But I also, at the same time, I was able to structure my life just in terms of its chaos. I, I had some kind of sense of purpose. And that was the lucky thing that kind of really, really kind of kept me going right from very, even before all the tragedy in my life was a sense of purpose. And I got that from really knowing that I was going to be an actor and knowing that's what I wanted to do because it was, you know, and it goes back to those 
New Year's Eve celebrations where my dad, we had a coal bunker and I used to stand on the coal bunker and I'd do Jolson impersonations and I could feel the feeling in the room. And it was the feeling in the room that I just thought, I need to be part of that feeling in the room. I need to be I need to be in an air, in a in a position where I'm kind of instituting that feeling, you know. I mean, I and that was from you know that age when I was tiny wee, and I I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I was given that experience, and that's why I value my profession because I think my profession is a very it's a very fine profession. A lot of people kind of laugh at actors and say actors are spoiled, and you know, and of course, there's elements of that which are true. But also they're like, um, you know, they're like sort of, they have a kind of quality of, um, well, you know, they're seekers, you know, they seek, they're seekers. And, uh, and so there's a sort of religious, religiosity about them in the way that they, they are trying to find out. Basically, they're trying to find out what, is it, what does it mean? What's it all about? Why are we here? What's it doing? What's, what are we doing? What is this whole thing? You know, we create all these myths and things that we surround ourselves, God, religion, this, that, Buddhism, you know, Taoism, uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, <laughs> you know, Jehovah's Witnesses. We create all this in order to sort of get at something else. And so, of course, quite a lot of the time, we're just doing all that, but still missing the point like big time. <laughs> <laughs> big time. You uh, got into theater professionally when you were a young teenager. You were like 14 when you started working. 15, at, 15. At, at 15 when you were working at it, when you started working at a theater in Scotland and, and eventually went to Lambda in, in England. Yeah. And I was not there. But my understanding is that this same time that you were going from, uh, you know, a teenager who thought I'd like to be an actor to, you know, a, a real professional, successful stage actor as a 30-year-old or whatever, was a real period of tumult and change in theater in the UK? It was certainly a tumult of change and tumult in theater, but it was also a change, too, that, you know, we were living, uh, and, and, you know, the best time was the 60s. There's no question about it <laughs> because, you know, and everybody goes on about it, but it was true because we'd come out of a war, and the first 50 years of the 20th century were hell, absolute hell, what with... You know, with the Boer War, followed by the First World War, which was basically a row between three ruling families, and and millions of people were killed as a result of that. And then going into the Depression of the 30s, and then finally the rise of Hitler and the Second World War, and, you know, and all coming to a head. And then, it, so out of that, after 45, and we all got to that period of peace, and we went through, and of course, in our country, it became, you know, we lost our socialist government that had created the National Health Service, that had nationalized the railways, nationalized the mines, and it was, it was an amazing time. But it was very stark, and of course, it was very anti-feudal, and that's ostensibly what the United Kingdom is. It's a feudal country. So there was this whole feeling of social mobility, which was astonishing, so that I could come from Scotland and I wasn't judged. I wasn't regarded as, oh, he's this guy from that world and he does that. You know, I was welcomed. And the theater community completely welcomed me that I could do anything. And it was just, you know, it was like 
unbelievable. I mean, I had a grant. I had, I had my, uh, my, my fees were all paid. My expenses were paid. My living allowance was paid. That was unheard of 10 years later, 15 years later, because people got cute. Oh, they're getting it for fear. We've got to stop it. You know, and, the, and there's always been that. But I'm, you know, I'm in the wake of people like Albert Finney, Alan Bates, Peter O'Toole, Tom Courtney, those amazing actors. And then the people like Lindsay Anderson, Tony Richardson, Carl Rice, John Schlesinger, who created that free cinema of the, of, of the 60s. And that was so liberating that anything was possible. And it existed for, you know, a good 10 years. And then the doors started to close and the old ways came back. To such an extent now that we, you know, working class kids don't have access to the theater in the way I had it as a young man. I mean, it's still there. There is still a possibility of it. But there was a system whereby you were encouraged to, to earn, take your place. And, and they gave you your place. And nowadays, you know, the top schools, I'm, I've got nothing against them. They're talented. There's no question. But they had such amazing kind of uh, conditions. The conditions were phenomenal. The, I mean, the theaters in these public schools were second to none. And ironically, they were, they were all taught by ex-actors, failed actors who came along and they could earn their living teaching at you know, one of the major public schools. Now, that's fine, but what happened is to the other end of it where the, the, working, the working classes just got more and more alienated and less, that was less available to them. It was completely available to me. So that's why I prize it. And, this, and I'm, I'm so angry that that has gone. And I, I want to see it re, re, reintroduced because it was so necessary. You have done a huge amount of classical theater in your career. Basically, throughout your career, you have done classical theater. And I sometimes think that like the whole like classically trained thing is just a thing that culture critics say when they can't think of anything else to say. But I do think there is a connection between the work that you do on succession and uh, the work of acting Shakespeare. And that is that, you know, there are multiple parts of, of acting. Um, you know, one could say that y y part of acting is, reflecting a, an emotional truth of some kind mm -hmm. to the audience, mm -hmm. that Absolutely. kind of thing. Then there is also, you know, like David Mamet said in his book about acting, it's just like saying the words loud enough so the audience can understand them. Yeah. And uh, David Mamet's contempt for acting aside, like the thing, <laughs> the thing that those, that succession and Shakespeare have in common is there are so many words and you have to both have the, heart the feeling to connect to the unemotional truth that is conveyed wordlessly to the audience. Mm -hmm. And you have to have incredible specificity with how you're using the language because otherwise they will just lose track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know no, no, no. I mean, I mean well, th th there is that. The line is, there's all, you know, the writers do make a very clear line. And if the actor is you know, worth his weight, you know, as a performer, then he can do that. I mean, the classical training for me was invaluable. You see, I wanted to be a movie actor. I never wanted to be a theater actor. That was not what I was intending. I loved the movies. I wanted to be in the movies. But when I 
when I got into the theater and I discovered the theater, it was like a revelation. I thought, my God, the language, you know, I mean, in Shakespeare, you go, really? And, and then when you work on Shakespeare more and more, you discover how subtle and how seducing his language is, how, how, how his ideas are so extraordinary and so brave and so, and all his plays all relate to one another. He tries out something in one play and then he follows it through in another play. And, and also this, always with Shakespeare, is, is that it's all lessons about the country in which he lives. So there's an allegorical sense to him as well. He's a, he's a political writer in that way. And that's rich. That's a rich cake. And you go, wow, you know, it's, it's, it, it revolutionized me. And it made me into a theater actor, which I never thought I was going to be, because of this, the quality of the work, the quality of the writing. And then you get on, and not just Shakespeare, but you get on to Bowman and Fletcher, you get on to the Jacobean writers, you get on to the Restoration writers, you, you know, uh, um, Farquhar, you know, the, the recru- all those amazing plays. And you discover a whole different land that you didn't I didn't even know existed but it it fed me and it it made me it gave me the the gravitas that I needed to be an actor and I value it highly so when you come to something like succession of course it's there at your grasp because you've had the experience you know how to deal with that language you know how to just allow the language it's top layer, but not overinflate it so that it becomes, you know, it, it, it's a kind of, you have, a, you have to have a delicacy of touch dealing with this stuff. And I just, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's like mother's milk to me. <laughs> I want to ask you about a couple of American things. So you were on Fresh Air, our, I guess, sister show on NPR with, uh, my semi-colleague slash definitely hero, Terry Gross. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. At the end of the interview, which I caught some of on the radio, she slipped in a cast recording of you in the mid-90s playing Harold Hill in yeah. The Music Man. Yeah. I don't know if she asked you about that and it didn't make it into the cut, but there wasn't any conversation about it. As much as Terry loves the great American musical, certainly more than I overall, I think I probably can compete with her in loving The Music Man. So, how did you end up playing the most legendary American flimflam man of the musical stage? Well, I I love the Music Man, and I particularly love Robert Preston. You know, he was a struggling actor for many, many years. He did great stuff. He did wonderful, and then he comes and he hits it with that performance. And it's an astonishing performance. It's committed. It's witty. It's funny. It's sharp. It's he's he dances it brilliantly. I mean, and by dancing, I mean the just the delicacy of his movement throughout the whole performance. And he played Harold Hill on stage. Then in the movie, he created the role. And then for many, like into his seventies, he played it on stage yeah. thereafter. So I, you know, I, I, I just I, actually I was asked to direct. It was it was the Regent's Park, and. I I was approached by uh, the director at Regent's Park, and, and he said, listen, Brian, I, I want you to direct Richard III. Are you happy to do Richard III? Now, I'd done Richard III. I was in it with Ian McKellen. And quite honestly, I didn't like the production. I was in it, and I didn't like it. I thought it was 
kind of they did, we we did it as a sort of you know we set it like it was Nazi Germany and uh, it was I thought quite wrong really that was my opinion but it was successful because of Ian McKellen who played Richard you know he gave a uh, an extraordinary performance but I just didn't like the play the play I thought you know I mean, this what this this isn't right i don't know what it is but the play is not getting the value so when he said to me would you like to direct richard the 3rd i said well i would because i'd like to get something out of my system about that play because i i i grew to hate richard the 3rd and now i having worked on it and directed it and you know realized a lot of what it's an early play it's full of a lot of his early ideas like titus andronicus because it's written exactly at the same time they're almost sister sister plays so i thought okay i'll direct the play and i got into and then and then i discovered that they were doing the music man now my eldest kids we used to watch it regularly and i and dad and they said oh, dad it would be great if you did that sometime and it came along and I said, would you mind if I auditioned? Because I, you know, I didn't audition. I said, I'd, I'd like to audition for the, the music man. They said, you want to audition? <laughs> sure. I said, yeah, yeah, because I, you know, I don't want to do anything. If you think that I'm not good enough, I will bow out. But I'd like to have a go. And have a go I did. And it was one of the best experiences <laughs> ever. I loved it. And then finally recorded it. And that on its we did the whole album but i don't know what's happened to the rest of the album it was probably terrible but anyway the one thing that survived is 76 trombones and the clarity of you know that wonderful you know friends you know all that open but it's all an homage to robert preston i couldn't have done it without robert preston i kind of copied him i pinched from him but i kind of inhabited him you know it was like i was playing robert preston and i loved it the reason I say American stuff is because I think that the themes of The Music Man are so distinctly American in that it lives in this world as... Absolutely. That as the 19th century turns into the 20th century, and as modernity leads people to question faith, you know, um, that there opens this world of flimflam, which is like things that live between truth and falseness yeah. and just stay there. You know, P.T. Barnum, it's not that people were fooled. It's that people were okay in between. They, <laughs> yeah. just as they were between the city and the, and the country, and yeah. they were between faith and atheism, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. godlessness, right? Yeah. Like it lives in between. And what's, what I love about it is that it also like, it embodies musical theater, American musical theater, in that it is absurd. I mean, it has the silliness, the fundamental silliness of musical theater. Like, musical theater is very goofy for everybody to go up and sing these songs, yeah. right? But it also lives within that totally honestly. Like, it's both things. You it know is. I mean? I, it's funny you should say that because I, um, Liz Robertson, who played, who was married to Alan J. Lerner, and... Uh, when she was very young, she was married to him, and uh, I think she was his widow, I, I, I think, eventually. And Liz had retired, and she'd gone back to England, and she was married to a guy who subsequently he's gone now, sadly. He ran the Albert Hall. And Liz had gave me a present on the first night, which was Meredith Wilson doing the pitch 
of <laughs> of uh, Music Man with his Russian wife who sang all the high notes. And it's a one, I mean, I've got to find the tape. I've got it back in London somewhere. It's a wonderful thing because there he is doing the whole bit. And it's just incredible. I, I mean, it's an incredible show. Incredible show. We'll wrap up with Brian Cox after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's the dramatic conclusion of Minority Corner with your host, James Arthur M. Yes, that's right. After seven years, this will be the end. Will James and his guest co-host solve racism, homophobia, and sexism? Will James end his longtime feud with Jennifer Hudson? Will someone get married, turn out to be an evil twin? Will James and his guest co-host talk about news, pop culture, history, and all things nerdy? Probably. Yeah, that's probably the one that will definitely happen. Find out on the dramatic conclusion of Minority Corner right here on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Minority Corner, because together, we're the majority. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with actor Brian Cox. Did you think of yourself as a comic actor when you were a young actor? I Well, my inclination was always towards comedy, you know, but I kind of got diverted into, because, you know, I played a lot of kind of young heroes and things like that, and, and I didn't do the comedy that I would like to have done, you know, because I was a very, I, I, as I said, you know, Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis. I love Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. And I love Danny Kaye. And Danny Kaye, who had this kind of goofiness and elegance combined, was quite extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary talent. So I really did want to do a lot more comedy, but it just wasn't coming my way, you know. And uh, I mean, it's only in recent times that, I mean, the, you know, the nice thing about Logan is he gets a few laughs, which is which I love. You know? <laughs> I asked on Twitter, like, oh, Brian Cox is coming on the show tomorrow. Is there anything you should ask? I should ask him about? And, you know, like everybody just said the same three things from Succession, which is great. Succession's great. And then I would say by a very wide margin, the number two thing that people wanted me to ask you about was Super Troopers. All right. Um, which is, uh, you know, it is a, a cult comedy film from uh, when I was in college. So I was in the cult. Certainly, it came out in 2001, and th this I'm just going to play a scene from it. So it's a it's a bunch of state troopers uh, who are doofs, and you are the captain of the barracks. So in this scene, you are trying to give them the get your act together talk. We got 50 miles of highway here. That stretch of highway is ours, and I'll be damned if I'll let Grady and those buttheads get their hands on it. Thorny, you're the ranking officer here. Let's do your jobs and keep this place open, huh? Let's do it. Father, your suspension continues. Hit the radio. How did you end up in this movie? <laughs> like, the well, it was, you know, it's again, you know, it's what people don't expect, you know. And it's the job. I mean, I love the range of the job, you know, to, to play, you know, Captain, whatever is Hannigan? No, not Hannigan, Captain. Uh, O'Hagan. <laughs> O'Hagan, Captain O'Hagan, that's right, John O'Hagan. I, I mean, I say, I played another character at the same time in a film called L.I.E., and he had an Irish name as well, and I used to get them confused. I, was, I mean, I was <laughs> literally thinking of, like, this is, I think, the same year uh, that you did this, like, very intense, independent, pedophilia-themed drama 
L-I-E. That's right. That you yeah. were doing yeah. the yeah. dumbest, goofiest, <laughs> silliest comedy. Yeah, well, but that's exactly what the job's about. You know, we, the, it's the range of what we do, you know. And you have to, I, I feel it's great. You know, you learn so much from embracing it. You know, I mean, there are actors who will, you know, just will not do that because they will, they say, no, that's not my, you know, I, you know, like Gary Cooper always said, I have to play the hero. You know, I can't do anything else. And you say, well, what a shame, poor Gary, you're missing out. You're missing out. I, I don't feel that. I feel anything goes, you know, if, if the part is appealing, I'll go for it. And, uh, uh, Hara was, you know, he was, he was a great character and he was frustrated and, all those shenanigans and these kind of mad guys that he was having to deal with. And you with. get to, you mean, get I, to I, say I always, shenanigans. That's the, like, the other thing is you're, almost no matter what the role is, you're singing a little song, like Danny Kaye, whether it's like Danny yeah. Kaye or, or, you know, like one of the great Shakespearean actors of the 1920s on a shellac disc or whatever. They're, they're singing a little <laughs> song. And, you know, when you get to sing, I, I'm going to play, this is one of my favorite line readings in a movie ever, um, in one of my favorite movies, Rushmore, which came out around the same time, you know, it's about this kid who is in school. He is a working class kid and a genius, but he is also like completely dissolute and like does not know how to be a student or relate to rich kids or anything. And you're the headmaster of the school. And in this scene, you're talking to Bill Murray, who's like a uh, a rich guy whose kids go to the school. But he's a sort of more salt-of-the-earth rich guy. And uh, Max Fisher, the kid, who's played by Jason Schwartzman, comes up to you. You know, I really think you're right about Rushmore. Come on, Dirk. What's his name again? Max Fisher. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. (laughs) (laughs) You ever surprise yourself with one of those? Well, it's just, yeah, I can hear it now, but at the time I just thought, oh, he's, he's terrible. He's one of the worst students we've had. You know, it's just, it's said with, well, I mean, he's so frustrated. I mean, he's so, Guggenheim is so frustrated by Max. He has these endless, he can't, he can't get through to him, you know, and he, he almost gives him a stroke you know, he, because he cannot get through to this kid and it's, it's, he's impenetrable. So he kind of gives up, but he kind of goes, oh, well, that's it, you know. <laughs> Um, in all these things that you've enjoyed writing about in your book and, and saying in recent months that have been, you know, there's a, there's a quote every four days that's something, uh, delightful and ridiculous that you've said, uh, doing press for this book or from this book. Um, are there any that you, uh, would take back if you had the chance? No, je ne regret rien. You know, I mean, uh, the thing is, you know, when I was younger, I would I would censor myself a lot. You know, oh, you can't do, it. oh, you can't say, it. oh, you can't. Do that. But you know, when you're seventy five, you know, I, I don't give. <laughs> you know, I really, I'm. I'll say what I feel. I'll say what I think. And it's not always what people think. I think they think I think one thing, and they and I I just have to realign them and say, no, no, you've got that wrong. Actually, it's this. It looks like that, but in fact, it's this, you know, and that's, that's the great thing about 
language and intention. You know, people don't always get it. They don't. They think you're doing one thing, and in fact, you're doing something quite else. Well, Brian Cox, I sure appreciate you taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. And I guess in conclusion, f*** off. Yeah, yeah, and f*** off yourself. Brian Cox, folks. His memoir is called Putting the Rabbit in the Hat. You can get it at your local bookstore. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where here at my house, my daughter hosted a front porch party uh, welcoming the delivery of her used PSP. I, I don't know, 15-year-old portable video game system. She was really excited about it. She saved for it. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.